Welcome to Mental Radio, where we talk about mental health from a holistic perspective. I'm your host, Jesse Zuckman, and on the show today, we have Michael Unbroken. Michael is a childhood abuse survivor and a trauma coach. We talk about all of the ways there are to get back on your feet from complex trauma, from childhood trauma. We hear Michael's story going from just being down and out and suicidal and addicted to someone who is making a difference in his community and helping others find help. And I share a little bit of my own journey dealing with uh, my issues in with childhood neglect and childhood trauma um, myself. Really excited to bring Michael to you. He's definitely someone who approaches mental health from a different kind of place. He's uh, very motivational. He's very uh, go-getting. He's, uh, if you're the kind of person that responds to, hey, let's get going, let's go do the thing kind of energy, Michael is your guy. But before we get started, as always, don't make any changes to your treatment plan based on anything you hear here. Um, Also, there is a little bit of talk of self-harm. Um, so if you're in a place where you don't want to hear about that, this might not be the podcast for you right now. We're not going anywhere. Just, uh, dial us up when you're in a little bit of a better space, but, um, you know, just, uh, be forewarned. This can be an explicit conversation. And as always, if you like what you hear, please consider supporting our nonprofit media efforts over at mentalhealthmedia.org, where you can make a tax-deductible contribution to the project and uh, find all of our links, all of our socials. And the other thing you can do is just share, 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 share. If you know somebody who can benefit from this conversation, please let them know about the podcast, let them know about Mental Health Media, and share our work. We really appreciate it. And with that, I bring you Michael Unbroken. Hello, Michael. Thanks for uh, being on the show. Thanks for being with us today. Hey, thank you so much for having me. It's my honor and my pleasure, and I'm really looking forward to it. Your name is Michael Unbroken. Tell us a little bit about that. Tell us who you are. Yeah, man. So, you know, I I realized, and this is a bigger part of what it is that I do. um, I realized long ago that for some reason in society, many people who have been told that they have mental health issues, whether it be abuse or, you know, a gamut of things often get labeled as broken. And I realized that even myself included for a long time had these thoughts of like, okay, why are, why is my life different than everyone's? Why am I upset? Why do I have depression, anxiety, suicidal thoughts? Why do I have all these things that I can't seem to place my finger on coming back to this idea? Like, you know, maybe, maybe that is true. Maybe I am broken, but I realized that's not really how I think it's not really the nomenclature for my life. And so I was laying in bed one night, it's like three o'clock in the morning a few years ago. And I had started this side project called these 10 aces, which was um, about educating people about the adverse childhood experiences survey. And it just hit me in the middle of the night. I was like, Oh no, no, it's think unbroken. That's how I am. I don't think broken on the opposite. And so that's like the overarching brand. And then Michael and broken is just, you know, that that's my, if you will, public slash personal persona under the brand hierarchy. Um, and, and it's very much like who I am. I don't believe that I'm broken. I don't believe that anyone is. I think that a lot of us just have not been given the tools that we need to know otherwise. 
I like it. I like it. it's kind of like uh, the old in the old punk rock hardcore days. Like people would have their first name and then the last name of their band. So it's kind of mm. like that, you know. It's like <laughs> Freddie Madball was, uh, you know, it comes to mind or or any of these these guys. I like how uh, I like it. I think uh, I'm I'm going to think about uh, taking that on a little bit myself. Um, so tell people, uh, there's a lot of people out there that don't know about ACE scores. I didn't even know about ACE scores until I had already been disabled with mental illness for like five years. And mm-hmm. I, I found out about it. I'm like, oh, just so much clicked. So I know there are a lot of patients out there that have never even heard of an ACE score. What are you talking about? Yeah, no. And I had the same experience. I realized when I was deep into researching, I had come across a whole bunch of books and I was reading, listening to all the podcasts and doing all the mental health things everyone told me to do. Go to the gym, eat well, blah, 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 blah. Go to my therapist, blah, blah, blah. And, and in that process, I came across Folletti's study, Dr. Folletti from um, Kaiser Permanente and the California Center for Disease Control called the ACE survey or Adverse Childhood Experiences Survey, which correlates child adversity to adult symptoms, meaning that depending on what happened to you when you were a child, there is a possibility that there are ramifications as an adult. And a lot of these manifest in ways of uh, physical illness, right? And if you've ever read The Body Keeps the Score, it's kind of mentioned there. Um, You know, you might be sick for no reason a lot. You might have bad allergies. You might have IBS, which is one of the most common things. Um, Or it can manifest in debilitating anxiety and depression or suicidal thoughts along with um, even diagnoses. So whether it be bipolar or schizophrenic or whatever, there's so many correlations between the experiences that we have as children and as adults. And when I found this study, it became a light bulb moment for me because I realized that I'm a very much a why person. If you can show me why I can navigate it. Right. And because of that, I was, I had a reason to the rhyme. So I'm like, Oh, this is why I'm depressed because it's indicative that someone who had an A score of 10, which is the highest that you can have, which is what mine is that I would have these certain issues. I would have these elements. I would have these, um, these thoughts and that study, I think if you don't know anything about mental health, but you know that you had a bad childhood and you may not even remember it, but you're kind of like, I know something happened. I need to investigate it. Look up ACE study score and mm-hmm. go through and answer these 10 questions and then go and look at Dr. Folletti's research and see that, you know, depending on where you fall in this category, you could potentially be up to 5,200% more likely to commit suicide, 4,000% more likely to have strokes and pulmonary embolisms, like 2,000% more likely to be an alcoholic or cigarette smoker. And, and this is obviously versus people who had like a perfect childhood, right? So mm-hmm. the higher you go up that scale, the more exponentially in, impactful your your future could be right. So that that study is like paramount. If you are someone who's dealing with anything, like start there. It's almost like if you deal with a lot of stuff as a kid, or if certain things didn't happen that you needed, your body is always in on mode. You have you know you're more likely to have like hyperacusis, like hearing. You might get e- more easily startled. You might your body is more sensitive to foods and it's just like your body is on because your your nervous system was given the instruction that 
this is a dangerous world. You better be on. And that never shuts down. And it causes all kinds of these kinds of things that are just, you know, it's making it a little bit more simple than than it really is. But at the base of it, it's like your body is on all the time. And when I heard that, when I read uh, Basil Vanderkolk's Body Keeps the Score, I was like, oh, God, so much makes sense. And the other thing I want to highlight for people, and for me, you know, nothing really explicitly bad happened. I thought I had a great childhood, but the truth is neglect is a big ace marker too. If you're going to school with out clean clothes, if you went to bed hungry a lot, if you didn't have people around to care for you, if you had a parent in car- who was incarcerated, if you have a parent with mental illness or uh, alcoholism, those things all count in a big way also. So it can be kind of fuzzy for people from my end of the spectrum where it's like, I don't know, nothing happened to me. Uh, I took care of myself. How could anything be wrong? Well, you know, that, that counts too. Yeah. And those are a whole lot of nothings, right? Like you Mm -hmm. got a, you got a list of like five nothings that happen because societally we're taught like those things aren't necessarily that big of a deal because abuse is typically geared to be more indicative of a physical nature. Right. Mm -hmm. But we don't think about what it's like to go through a divorce, to watch someone in your family get arrested, to, you know, have your mother be an alcoholic or your drug addict father. You know, these things are all neglect. They're all abuse and they all play a role. Absolutely. Absolutely. And people don't think of it. I didn't think of it, you know, and once I was able to find that, I was able to find all of these other things that worked for me. I was able to find adult children of alcoholics, which is kind of a trauma-informed 12-step group. Helped so much. Al-Anon is a similar kind of thing. Um, I found EMDR therapy, um, which allowed, you know, before that I was like, there's no trauma. There's nothing for me to process. But after I, I figured that out, there was stuff. Um, but your story, you do ha- your your story is of more the abuse, hands-on, hurt kind of abuse. Yeah, you know, it, it's. I don't think that my story is necessarily that different than a lot of people. Uh, it's just that it's super intense. You know, I grew up with my mother high level. My mother was a drug addict and alcoholic. Uh, my stepfather was the stepfather you pray that you never get. Um, I never met my actual birth father and, you know, we grew up in the Mormon church and like all these things were kind of happening. The abuse was rampant, physical, mental, emotional. Um, you know, my, my stepfather was as big as I am now, you know, six, four, 200 plus pounds, And, you know, he would beat the shit out of my brothers and I, my mother would drive drunk and threaten to kill us. Um, She attempted suicide multiple times. I was like the kid who was home the first time who had to call 911. You know, we often went without food. We often, you know, lived, we were homeless so, so frequently that I think at one point between eight to 11 years old, we lived with about 40 different families from the Mormon church. Um, and other strangers too, like my brothers and I were constantly separated. Um, and then of course you have that part of it too, like you know, grown up Mormon and, and look, Mormon people are great. That's fine. That's neither here nor there, but there are a lot of blind eyes turned to the abuse. It's kind of hard to not talk about children who have bruises on their faces and necks and arms. Um, but it kind of goes unsaid. Um, and, and, you know, growing up like that, 
by the time I was 12, my grandmother adopted me. My mother was in and out of rehab. She had finally divorced my stepfather. And uh, I'm, I'm biracial, so I'm black and white. And my my grandmother's was an old lady from Tennessee, Sunbright, population 500 people. You never even heard of it, right? And she was super racist. And so during oh my, my teens, now, you know, which is already the hardest point of time in your fucking life, um, mm-hmm. I'm going through this process of an identity crisis. And I start doing drugs at 12 years old. I start selling drugs. I start breaking into houses, stealing cars, running around with guns, running from the police. And that was much of my teen years. And I spent a lot of time high. I spent a lot of time avoiding reality just because it was easier. Uh, and then when I was, I was 14, I decided to take a whole bottle of ibuprofen, uh, not realizing that it doesn't actually kill you. It just really makes you sick. Um, <laughs> and so that was a, that was a part of the, what my teen and adolescence, adolescence looked like. And so didn't graduate high school on time, went to one of the worst high schools in the country. My Where friends were getting, this was in Indianapolis. Um, mm-hmm. I went to, by the time I graduated finally late, um, you know, my friends, so many had been arrested. Some had been murdered. My three childhood best friends murdered in the neighborhood that we grew up in. You know, they just never made it out. Um, you know, and this is, this still happens as adults, you know, two of them died in the last three years. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of just knew I had to get out. So not only had the abuse of the home life, but by the time I was a teen, like you talk about being in constant fight or flight mode. I mean, that's literally every day, you know, and, you know, by the time I was in my 20s, I didn't realize what was happening. And I just I figured, you know, the solution to poverty and the way that I grew up was money. I landed a great job in corporate America. I started making six figures at 21 years old, which is almost impossible. Wow, what were you doing? um, I was working for an insurance company. So I was doing sales and this is like pre-Obamacare, right? Um, And so this is like 2006, 2007, somewhere in that window. And, and so I had all this money, but it only exacerbated the problems. And so what happened is I just took this deep dive into drugs and alcohol. I was drinking literally every single night. Um, I was high from the moment I woke up to the moment I went to bed, which this wasn't really that different than my teens, except I had more access to funds. Um, (laughs) There was a Mm. bar I lived above. It was like, cheers, man, where I would go downstairs. (laughs) Everybody knows your fucking name. And Mm. every month I had a $2,000 bar tab. Mm. And you're, and that was just kind of the lifestyle I was living. I went from homeless to doing whatever I wanted. And that just kind of sent me down this pit, just ruined relationship after ruined relationship. I gained 160 pounds. Um, you know, y'all, it was bad, man. It was bad. Um, and, and then by the time I was about 26, I was, a professional wedding photographer. I decided to get out of corporate America. I always had a camera in my hand, even as a kid. And I wanted to pursue that. But there's like this weird juxtaposition of growing this amazing business while having two girlfriends who don't know about each other. Mm. Um, (laughs) And it was just kind of dark, man. The stress of my life was super dark. And I had you know, four or five panic attacks a day. I was suicidal when I was 26, right after my birthday, I put a gun in my mouth and for whatever reason, the, the firing pin misfired and I'm here talking to you right now instead of dead. 
And, you know, my life just got crazier and crazier. And you would think like all of these things would be like the straw that broke the camel's back, but it wasn't. And when I was 28, I was getting ready to go and do a wedding convention, basically, you know, where a bunch of brides come in and they look at your photos and they go find all their vendors for the season. And this was a big deal. This is where I'd book, you know, five to seven weddings for my next year. And that morning I woke up, I was super hungover, smoked like two packs of cigarettes the night before. Like I looked at myself in the mirror that morning as I was getting ready. I felt like shit. I was putting on a size 47 pair of pants, size 4XL shirt I could barely button up. And I was just like, what am I doing? And it was just the sequence of events had led to this moment where I was like, okay, it's time to change. And it was literally, I want to say it was in a moment because it really truly was, it was a moment of decision and declaration where I said to myself, you know what, from this moment forward, everything is different. And that, that started the healing journey because I lived in a posh part of Indiana. There's a town called Carmel. It's been voted like the best city in America, like five or six times. It was like, it was posh to go to a therapist in your Cadillac. And that's what I would do, man. But I would go and pay this dude hundreds of dollars and then just tell him whatever I thought he wanted to hear. Like, this is literally the dumbest thing I've ever done in my life. And I've done some dumb things. And Mm. And so I'm 28, this total unbelievable breakdown happens. And I was just like, from this point on, whatever it takes, I don't care. It doesn't matter what the cost is. I'm going to get healthy. And that was seven years ago, Mm. almost seven years ago. And what was your first, uh, your first step? just acknowledging that I was, I was fucked up, man. I had to just look at myself in the mirror, acknowledge the fact that I had a really hard past, acknowledge the fact that I had a lot of dark secrets and a bunch of skeletons in the closet, acknowledge the fact that I was lying to myself and everyone around me, acknowledge the fact that I was not leading the life that I was capable of living. And the word that I would rather use in acknowledgement is I made a choice to become responsible. It is my fault that I got to where I was. It is nobody else's fault. It is no one's fault. I mean, yes, the trauma happened. Yes, the abuse happened. Yes, the drugs happened and the alcohol and all that stuff. But man, there's a point where you have to be responsible for yourself. And I had spent all this time playing the role of victim. 28 years worth of being the victim. And I I just thought to myself, this is not sustainable. This is not going to work. Long term, if I don't change right now, I'm going to die. And I just knew it. I could feel it. My body was breaking down. My spirit was totally broken. And I just decided step one, literally step one is you have to become responsible for yourself. You have to acknowledge that it is on you. And that was my experience. And I realized that's not, not everyone's going to agree with that, but that's my experience. Something you said struck me, which was, you don't think your story is so different it's just more extreme um or not an extreme but you said just i forget what the word you used but you 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 feel that your story is similar from other trauma survivors yeah absolutely i mean my brothers grew up in the same house as me right my sister was around this my family is a family of generational trauma right my my mother's parents did this. Their parents did this. This is not different, man. Sure, there's bits and pieces that are more intense. Like my mother cut my finger off when I was four years old. My brothers don't have that experience. 
but there are people in the world who know what it's like to walk in their house and be terrified every single moment as a child. That is where we don't differ. And that's the thing. It's like, it's, you know, I'm always careful and I, I want to be careful to universalize this experience, but being in so many rooms of so many different kinds of people, ages, races, gender, you know, poverty level, rich, poor, um, you know, being an adult children of alcoholics and just other, you know, kind of group therapy sessions, the stories are all different. The details are different, but the effects are often just so similar the way it, that kind of trauma affects us, you know, and when people come together dealing with childhood abuse from all these different walks of life, people have chronic illness issues. People have, you know, they're checking out the door. They have hypersensitivity to sound. Um, relationships, you know, just codependency in like trying to fix everybody, trying to to overwork. And then a lot of people dealing with substance issues. It's It was the, seeing just how many different types of people reacted in the same way that I did was hugely validating. And it, it was like, now I know I'm on the right right track because, yes, everybody has individual experiences. Every people have individual oppressions. People have individual, you know, adverse experiences. But the effects is the same, and so many also on the our paths of healing are so similar. Very often, yeah. I mean, it's. <laughs> I found that one of the most important things in this process is community. Like there is no questions asked. I, I spent so much time alone dealing with this shit that it, it just hit me like a brick one day. I was like, I can't do this by myself. I was with a woman for seven years and you know more about me in 20 minutes than she knew in seven years. There is a problem there. Right. And so I realized, you know, what I need to do is I need to get in some group therapy situations. I need to go to support groups. I need to check out Reddit forums. I need to get in Facebook groups. I need to talk to my friends. I need to talk to my family. I need to be around people who are going to support me, not people who are going to fix me because it doesn't work that way, but people who are going to be like, Hey man, I, I hear you. I feel you. I got a hug for you. Let's go and have lunch or coffee or be in connection with each other. I was carrying so much of this burden on my own for so long that one night about, I guess it was almost four years ago, maybe five years. I don't remember exactly. I wrote this huge post and I put it on Facebook. And for the first time, I just put all of a high level version of all my shit out there because I felt like the weight was so heavy. I just had to like I felt so drawn and called to do that, that I just like wrote this diatribe, threw it online. And what happened was spectacular. I was terrified when I did this. But what happened was people that I've known literally for 15 years started messaging me and going, Hey man, like my family life was like this, or my mom was like that, or my dad was also like this. And other people started messaging me just saying, thank you for like, creating a space for this. Right. Thank you for sharing your story because I relate to this. And I mean, it hundreds and hundreds of comments, hundreds of emails and messages and all those things. And, and that to me was, 
you know, that was a big step for me because I felt like I'd sh- kept that all alone. And to have that level of connection with other people was mind boggling. I never saw that coming. Um, and then to put myself in situations of, okay, I need to find, I literally sought out men's group therapy. I sought out child abuse group therapy. I sought out all these different modalities with the purpose of creating community. And ultimately what I did, I put a team of people around me to be of supports in my healing journey. And, you know, years and years later removed from those things, I don't do them as frequently because I feel like it's like a lot of the hard work is done and now I'm just in sustainability. But I know that if I ever got to the point where I was no longer feeling sustained, I have those options and I will rebuild that community. That is, I mean, community is just so, has been so important in my journey. I, I usually, I, I've told people like this community is an accelerant for anything else you're doing. Cause for me, we're so isolated and, you know, humans that throughout, throughout our evolution who have been isolated are one step from death. There's like this certain vulnerability when we're isolated and there's a certain security in community I found. So when I have community, when I have a place I can go every Sunday morning, whether that's synagogue, whether that's, you know, going to independent wrestling or music or just a place I can show up every week where I know people are going to accept me, you know, uh, no matter what, you know, within reason, um, I can take more chances in therapy. I can be more vulnerable with strangers. I can do, I can be more vulnerable with the other people in my life because I'm never, I don't feel like I'm on the edge where if I have just a couple of friends, I feel, I always feel like if I just say the wrong thing, if I say the wrong messy thing while I'm still recovering, putting my mind back together and my soul back together, it's just having that community piece is just so anchoring. And for me, I didn't even know I was missing it until I found it. And then I was like, oh my goodness, everything is just falling into place now. Um, it sounds like you've had a similar, like it's a similar pillar for you. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's the one thing I always encourage people to do first is go and put yourself around people who understand. I'm not saying they're going to understand your particular scenario because it's so different, but put yourself around people who can relate, people who can understand, you know, from an aspect, people who can be of support to you. That That's number one. Like, go do that first. Like, if you're listening to this right now and you're like, oh, man, I feel so alone and nobody gets it. Well, you're wrong straight up, like go find it, like Google support group for whatever it is that's going on with you. I swear to God, there's going to be 19 in your city. Go and show up. You have to be accountable for yourself. Um, you, you mentioned men's therapy specifically. I actually just did a, a podcast with another guy that did a, a program called Sacred Sons, and he found it so healing to be in that masculine space to take on issues specifically related to men. Why did you feel it was important to find you know, male specific healing spaces? Um, I think because not think I know I felt like the majority of my life up until that point had been my relationships with men had been very either combative um, or very superficial. And I felt like I'd never had any real bonds forming with with men. Um, and you know, we, we grew up, I grew up, I'm, I'm 34. I grew up in a society where boys don't cry. Boys don't hug. We do this whole bullshit man handshake thing. Um, 
<laughs> you know, the man hug, uh, you know, we, we don't show up for each other outside of talking about like all the beer we drank and who we fucked. And to me, I, I felt like that's not, that's not good enough. Um, my relationship with men, I had abandonment issues for one. I never met my father. And then the only man I ever had in my life was super abusive, you know, growing up. So I had this really hard, uh, just feelings of either abandonment with men or like I couldn't open up to them for fear of, you know, judgment or repercussions. And I made it a choice to step into this place of being very uncomfortable, not necessarily so I could build those relationships within that group, but so I could take those experiences outside of that group and build them on my own. And it's helped me tremendously. I would, I would say it's probably one of the most important two years of my life being in that room with these guys every Wednesday. And, and what was very fascinating is I was the junior of them by 20 years. Like mm. these guys are all in their late forties, early fifties, some in their sixties. And the experience that you get just from being in that kind of maturity. And some of those guys have been in this group for 15 years, right. Or excuse me for like 10 years. And it was proctor led. And I think this is a really important thing to note also. This group was led by a trained and licensed therapist. This was okay. not a support group, right? And so when we were in this group together, I felt like we could go a little bit more deeper than you may in like a traditional um, um, support group setting. So that, that to me, it was just all about like, how do I get in better relation with with men in a healthy way that's not combative and that's not superficial long answer how do people find a group like that if they're listening i mean i did adult children of alcoholics it sounds kind of similar and people were also you know i'd started when i was 36 and people were also probably average 25 30 years older than me mm -hmm. um, but it still was super super helpful how do how, what are resources that people can use to find you know a group like you're talking about Man, no joke. I found this. I found this group through Psychiatry Today. Like I like I went to their website and I just started searching through all the therapists where I was in Portland, and I like just started calling around. And one guy I talked to who did not become my therapist, but someone I had a conversation with, he goes, "Hey, you might be interested in this group therapy situation." So I call that therapist and he's like, "Oh yeah, I got an opening. Why don't you come in and we'll chat and see if this is the right fit." So, I mean, I didn't find that specifically that that kind of came from um, you know, some some outside sources, but I mean, if you Google group therapy, you'll find something. I mean, that's the most powerful tool that we have right now. So you do work as a trauma mentor, which is a whole other thing, something I've never even heard of, to be honest with mm -hmm. you. Um, yeah. Tell me, what is a trauma mentor? Who is it for? So here's what happened, man. I realized in this process, as I mentioned earlier, like <clears throat> mindset is the most important tool that we have in overcoming trauma and understanding our past. And I realized in my own healing journey that I had the therapists, I had the you know, I tried the medicines, I tried the pharmaceutical, like I, I just tried everything. But what was missing was someone to be like, hey, man, like you're doing a good job or hey, man, you're fucking up here or like a support that was outside of this normal system that we have societally. I, I realized that 
all of the people, I've been an entrepreneur for a very long time. And all the people that I looked up to in entrepreneurship would always kind of come back to this idea of like, have a business coach, have a business mentor. And I was like, man, I need that for what I'm trying to do. I need someone to help me understand, to build healthy practices, to understand mindset, to create growth, to have a game plan and stick to it. Right. Um, because intrinsically I've always been really good at staying on par for certain things, but my mental health was never one of those. And I needed someone when I first started this journey who could do that for me and they just didn't exist. And so, like you said, you've never even heard of anyone who does what I do, right? Because I don't know, honestly, man, and I've researched it. There's only like two other people I've ever found online who do this. Um, and so what I do with people, I, I created a workshop called think unbroken and it is entirely a workshop predicated on the understanding and foundation of the impact of childhood trauma as adults. It is, we talk about everything from a scores and the science of the brain to the mechanisms of the body, to really identifying the things that kind of keep us stuck in what I call the vortex. And this is the place where you're in self-loathing, where you hate yourself, where you don't step up. We talk about what does it look like to be on the other side of that? How do you get there? What are the steps that you can implement? And it's all built in mindset and, and around the things that you need to do. Because I realized like what I really craved and needed at the time that this journey began was just someone who had been through this, someone who could say, hey, the other side exists. Today, very much removed from the beginning of this journey. I'm happier than I've ever been, healthier than I've ever been, more sustained than I've ever been. You know, I just finished writing the book, Think Unbroken, Understanding and Overcoming Childhood Trauma. I'm working on my online training academy, which is all mindset driven, because that's the key. Like that is like that one piece of the puzzle that's missing is just the understanding that our brains are so plastic that we have the ability to adapt and adopt any changes that we want, but it's through accountability and creating these systems that we're able to ultimately do that. And that's kind of what I help people figure out is how do we get to that place? If what does that look like? What does that road take? And ultimately, you know, what are the systems that need to be in place for us to be successful and success varies, right? Because my idea of success is very different than other people's. And so everyone's going to have a different idea because for me, my success is waking up and loving myself every day and other people that might be, I want to have a healthy relationship with myself or my partner, or I want to be better at my career. I don't want things in my past to hold me down anymore. So it's like, that's a simplified version of it. It's very deep, but that's kind of the baseline. Now, if you told me what you just said uh, three years ago, now I'm, I'm totally on board. But if you told me three years ago when I was severely depressed, I was still going through drug withdrawals. I was dealing with chronic, serious chronic illness issues. Um, you know, I was dealing with, uh, you know, um, side effects and withdrawal effects that kind of look like MS. I was dealing with muscle twitching. My legs didn't work reliably. If you came and told me, Jesse, this is all about mindset, I would have told you to go to the moon. What do you say to somebody who's still dealing with acute effects of trauma and they say, there's no way out. I can't even imagine a way out. 
I would say, let's start imagining what it looks like. It's mm-hmm. easy to, it's, it's, dude, it is so easy to be like, everything is against me and it's really hard because I've been there. Right. And, and, and I'm going to say this. And if this makes people upset, good, because I want to prove a point. If I can do this, then anyone can. I should be dead or in jail period. Right. And I am not an anomaly because I have amazing friends in my life who have been through very similar experiences who would agree that the same thing is you have to make a decision. You can either play the victim three years ago, Jesse, here, I'm going to tell you exactly what I say. Jesse, you and I have a conversation. You say all those things to me and I go, are you ready to be accountable for yourself and live a life? Or are you going to keep making excuses? We have to come to this point with ourselves where we hold ourselves accountable. And dude, you can make every excuse in the book, but you have to make a choice. Do you want to be healthy or do you want to blame it on your past? Do you want to be in a sustainable lifestyle or do you want to say I can't? Right. And, And that's a choice that you have to make. And it's such a hard choice because everything that we know leading up until that moment is the opposite of what we think can happen. And you have to ask yourself, like, who am I? Are you are you willing? Are you willing to go and look in the mirror and have a real conversation with yourself and say, hey, I'm not being accountable for myself. I am not showing up for myself. I'm making excuses. I am not happy. What am I willing to do? And then you have to ask yourself, what are you willing to do to change? I'm- right. Um, for sure. Good. Uh, I think, I think, you know, on the flip side, I think like for me, I was doing that, but on the flip side of that, I was missing the grace required for myself to give myself Mm -hmm. time and patience and a little bit of gentleness. Like my, my mindset was I'm trying these things. I'm trying so hard. It's not working. I'm fucked. I'm broken. You know, there's no way out because I'm doing everything I can and I'm exhausting myself. I'm spending every minute on research and this and that, but I didn't give myself a break to rest. Totally. And, and I have a theory about that. Sorry to cut you off, but no, I've thought about this for a long time, man. And I've asked a lot of people about this who kind of agree with me again. I think, and this is my personal experience, I believe that it takes you as long to get healthy as it did if you get fucked up. <laughs> and so if it takes you know 30 years before you make that switch, it might take 30 years before you're healthy. And you have to have patience. You have to have grace. Literally an entire chapter of my book is about patience, man, because it's so important. It is so important. But patience doesn't mean that you get to let off the gas when it comes to accountability and being responsible for yourself. Patience just means that you give yourself a little bit of space and grace, as you said, to understand that it's going to take a while and you're going to have good days and you're going to have bad days. And I think that my, I don't want to be misinterpreted here and saying that all of a sudden everything's different just because you have this moment. I still do the work. I still have my practices. I still have my routines because patience is the number one tool that I believe is going to get you through those times where you're like, why bother? Mm hmm. Yeah, I had a my doctor, my I went through bad at my first psychiatrist prescribed me like a dozen meds literally in like four months and I was just destroyed. Um eventually I found an amazing psychiatrist who helped me wean off 
helped me put healthy practices in my life, found a doctor that could figure out all, you know, my chronic illness issues, so on and so on and so on. And I remember I was like just over the hump of not being acutely suicidal all the time. And I was like, okay, I'm ready to go to work. <laughs> like, I'm like, I'm not suicidal. I'm cured. <laughs> I'm ready to go to work. But mm -hmm. I wasn't ready. Um, and I remember being in her office and she was like saying, Jesse, do you remember how you got sick? I'm like, yeah, I neglected myself for, you know, years, if not a decade. And she's like, that's how you're going to get better. This is not a sprint. This is a marathon and you're halfway home. Mm -hmm. I start crying in her in her office because I was like, oh, it just put it in so much perspective. And then I could just really feel it and be present where I was on that path uh, because of that she was absolutely right. And she could see it. Yeah. And that's I think that's such a big part of this game. And we forget it. I mean, think about it like this. There's probably a few things that you're proficient at, right? There are things that you're really good at, things that you could do blindfolded and upside down, right? Okay, now apply that same thought to your mental health, right? Take the time to just be like, okay, cool. I need to, I need to just roll with this and let what comes come and not beat myself up and not talk down about myself. You know, I read this book. I don't know if you're familiar with it called Radical Acceptance by Tara sure. Brock. Yeah, of and course. I mean, that, that book changed my life and I never even finished it <laughs> because, because we realize, I realized like, man, the way I talk to myself, I would never let anyone talk to me like that. And I mean, that was such a big part of that, that patience thing, because mm -hmm. growing up, um, my, my stepfather, my mother, my grandmother be like, you're stupid, you're retarded. Nobody's going to love you. You're dumb. Whatever that thing was. And those were the stories I carried with myself for years. And so in this process, patience became really big, especially in that area, because if we are the stories that we tell ourselves and I'm telling myself that I'm stupid, I'm dumb, I'm worthless, then that's going to be super true. And ultimately, I, I knew that that's not what I wanted and that's not who I was. And so I had to implement radical patience in just self-talk alone. And that was kind of a, one of the bigger catalysts for change. For sure, for sure. And this brings me to, to one of my last questions is something you talk about is baby steps. And this is kind of where, you know, once you make that switch, it's not like everything's going to be different all at once. Once you've decided to create a new life for yourself, to be accountable, to be, you know, to, to live a, a life of intention, you're not getting there tomorrow. So you talk about baby steps. This is something I've heard from a lot of survivors who are now thriving. Why are baby steps important and what are they? Yeah, man. I mean, you can't just be like, hey, I'm going to climb Mount Everest and go climb Mount Everest tomorrow. You're going to die, <laughs> right? You don't have training. You don't have tools. You don't have oxygen. You don't have a Sherpa. You don't have gloves. You're going to die, right? So you have to think about, here's how I think about most things. Like if I set a goal, I reverse engineer that goal to the first, most easy, most simple step. And that's where you begin. And from there, you you take little bits and pieces and you step forward every single day. And that little step, let, let's say, for instance, that, you, you know, I want to get to a place where, you know, I'm a person who is of support of other people in my community. 
Well, it's just like oxygen masks, right? You put yours on first if the plane is going down. So what are the things that I need to do to take care of myself first? Well, I need to sleep better. I need to adjust my diet and change my lifestyle. I need to be around healthy people. I need to, you know, talk to a therapist. I need to go to group therapy. I need to go to you know, the library and read every book I can find on mindset. I need to do all these series of things, but I can't do all those in one day or one week or even one year. Mm-hmm. But what can I do? I can start little pieces of each of them. I can find a book. I can find the therapist. I can find the group. And then what do you do? Then you go to the therapist. You go to the group. You start reading the book. Then you create a routine around that. And then you add bits and pieces on. And then you go, okay, now what can I do? I can go to symposiums. I can go to talks. I can listen to podcasts. And then you add bits and pieces of that. And this is the same way I think about mental health care, right? Your routine is ultimately one of the most important things that you can kind of cultivate because those are steps every day. There was a time, man, where like I literally would stay in bed all day long, like all day long. My girlfriend would come home when we used to live together, my ex-girlfriend, I should say, and she would come home and I would had just gotten out of the shower and she'd been like gone for 10 hours at work and I just like made the bed and I would have just put on clothes. And sometimes that's a victory. Sometimes just getting out of bed, putting on your shoes and going outside to get the mail is a victory, right? So baby steps can be just getting up, right? one step at a time. And and you have to ultimately figure out what works for you because it's going to be different for everyone. And if you're a person like me, my baby steps have to be a little bit more intentional, right? And I think that's one of the big things you have to take in consideration too. The why, why are you even doing this? And I hope the answer is for you, right? You should, anything that you're doing, any growth that you're trying to make in your life, it should be about you because you want to be the best version of yourself because you want to be happy and healthy and sustainable. And it shouldn't be about your partners and it shouldn't be about your job and it shouldn't be about your family or friends. It should be you because ultimately every morning you have to wake up and you have to go look in the mirror. And I mean, that's a great baby step, right? How do you go look in the mirror every single day? Tell yourself, I love me. That's a baby step. And that's probably more difficult than going to therapy, right? Um, So, I mean, there's so many different places to start. I could talk about this literally all day. Yeah. And the baby steps, I mean, at first, they're the hardest ones, just getting to therapy, getting to do these things. I mean, I, one of the first things that I did after, you know, my withdrawal symptoms started to subside just enough that I could drive reliably was taking transcendental meditation classes. Mm. And I thought, okay, maybe this will be the thing that works. And it definitely helped. And then, you know, as I got a little better, I started going to therapy uh, with an EMDR therapist. And that helped. And then I found that intersected with the meditation. And then I started eating better and eating whole foods, anti-inflammatory foods. And that helped. And that helped me meditate better. And that helped me do my work better in therapy and with EMDR. And now like the steps get easier. So it's like if if people are new on this journey, it sucks. For me, at least, it sucked at the beginning the most. And then you get into these strides where it's like, you know, I've I've thought I've been like cured so many times. And then I, then I, I, 
integrate a new practice or I just get to another level of mastery. And I'm like, oh my God, I was depressed. And like, now Mm -hmm. I look back and I can't even imagine how much pain I was in at the beginning because I still turn around even after years and years and years of improvement, I get to these other places and now I experience, oh wow, that's what real joy feels like. That's what real serenity feels like. That's what not worrying about something for a weekend feels like and it's mm-hmm. and you know it gets easier it's like as it's like it's almost like being i mean I, i'm not an athlete but i imagine that is the case you know with athletes you know becoming you know great you start off your rookie year you're you know if you're in the nhl you're getting beaten up you're getting pushed around and you know by the time you're 10 years in you have this real strength and mastery to do things you couldn't even imagine at the beginning yeah hundred percent. When I look back at the beginning of this journey, when I got serious about it. So when, when I decided to, you know what, I'm going to go see a therapist for real. I'm going to go to acupuncture. I'm going to go to yoga. I'm going to, you know, do EMDR and Reiki and manipulation literally every practice you could ever imagine. It was misery. I hate, dude, I hated it so much. I hated that I had to walk into a room and tell somebody about shit that happened to me when I was five years old, stuff that wasn't my fault. Like I hate having to share things like that. And then I realized like slowly, oh, those things started to lose power over me. Oh, this is interesting. I have a little bit of joy in my life. Oh, this is fantastic. I just cried for the first first time in 15 years. Oh, this is what it's like to be happy. Like, like those are milestones, man. And it took me years and and I didn't even real, here's a real kicker. I didn't even know I was depressed. (laughs) I had a therapist literally go, I think you're depressed. And I go, I've been this way since I'm five years old. He goes, Oh, I think you've been depressed since you were five years old. And I go, shit, you're right. (laughs) Oh, I mean, I, I remember taking the first time I took one of the paper depression tests and like, I remember just the look of the therapist. And this is one of the points where I thought, well, you know, I was, I had already had a crisis for like a couple of years and I thought I was doing great because I was able to get the therapy and I was like, oh, I'm on the road to recovery here. And I remember filling out that piece of paper and the therapist going, you you definitely like, this is, (laughs) you definitely chose to choose all of these answers. Like this is, you filled this out right? And I'm like, yeah. She's like, yeah, um... I, I don't know. Like, I think you're one step out of the hospital, you know? So it's like, it really, you, like, there's this thing where you can't really tell when you're in those depths, you can't really tell how bad you are. It's a weird thing. Um, you know, but that's, it's good news for people who are really depressed because it can get so much better with the doing this kind of work. Um, and it's not, that's not a narrative. I mean, the reason that I'm doing this work is because that's not a narrative that we see very often. You know, we see on the news, I don't know how many articles, like eventually there's going to be this new PTSD therapy that'll be approved and it's going to cure everyone maybe in a decade. Um, You know, no one, and then then there's just like so many articles, no end in sight for the PTSD epidemic. And it's just like over and over and over. I've never seen an article on a survivor saying, yeah, I got better by doing the work and slowly but surely I got my life back and now I'm even a better person than I was and I'm a better person than the standard because I've done all the self-work and that's everybody I know, 
you know, that's thriving. Like we all have done, it's such, you know, we're all very different in a lot of ways, but that story is universal for everybody that I know at least, which is dozens of people. Um, so thanks for, you know, sharing this narrative. Is this, is this something you get frustrated as well with just the way people talk about mental health? We talk about fighting stigma. We talk about all these things, but we don't really talk about recovery in this way. Is this something that you think about? Um, I'd stay away from those people, to be honest with you, especially in terms of online and this, the scope of social media right now, because here's what I know. Like my life is totally different than what it used to be. There was a period of time where in my late teens, early twenties, that if I would have died, like maybe five people would have come to my funeral because I was a huge asshole, man. I treated people like shit because that's how I treated myself. And I didn't know any different. And I look at my life today and I'm surrounded by amazing people and awesome friends and a better relationship with my, my brothers and my sister. And my life is totally different and it is indicative of change. And I know other people have had the same experience where they have put in the work and their lives are different. And I know that that is a possibility. I'm living proof of it. And I think that ultimately what it comes down to is what we've been talking about. The theme of this whole conversation is just choice and accountability, responsibility, and holding yourself up to, to a higher level of acceptance, right? And, and I do know that there are a lot of people who will always play the victim. There are people who will listen to this podcast and go, I can't do that. There are people that will listen to this and go, you know, those guys, they're anomalies. Yeah, sure. They were drug addicts. Yeah, sure. That this or that, but you know, they're lucky. They figured it out. They have resources, blah, blah, blah. I don't have anything that anyone else doesn't have access to, man. I got the internet. I got <laughs> the ability to make a choice and in that I've created change. And if you want to create change, you have to decide it. And with there's naysayers and if there are people who feel like their life is never going to be different, it's not. Guess what? It's not because you've decided that whether consciously or subconsciously, the moment that you say you can't, then you're not going to be able to. But the moment that you say you can, you'll be able to start stepping forward and making those changes, baby steps, right? This comes back to that whole point, right? Put yourself in a position emotionally and mentally where you're willing to say, this is the direction that I'm going. This is what I'm going to do. And in time, patience, those things will change and they will come to pass and you will wake up one morning and you will be happy and you will love yourself. And there's not, I'm not saying there's not going to be hard days. I'm not saying there's not going to be dark days. You know, I've tried to kill myself twice by the time I was 26 years old. There are dark days. Almost a decade later, the thought never crosses my mind. I'm not saying it never will again, but it certainly doesn't look that way because I have the tools in place, the system in place, the community in place, the resources in place. I have set myself up to have a successful future. And if you do those same things, you will too. It's just a matter of choice. Are you going to step up for yourself today? Because change is inevitable, right? If you choose for it to be. Well said, well said. Where can people find you, your work, and your stuff? Yeah, the website is thinkunbroken.com, and I'm on social everywhere as Michael Unbroken. And and just to be clear, that you're not a therapist. You, what you're doing kind of supplements therapy and keeps people on that course. 
Yeah, hundred percent, man. I'm not a therapist. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not trained in anything other than the places I've shown up for. Right. And so I'll never diagnose anyone. And honestly, I'm not going to talk to you about your depression. That's not what I do, but I am going to talk to you about the tools that you can implement into your life to create change. And, and I, I imagine some of those tools help you get to the therapist. hundred percent. And some of those tools help. I, I mean, a lot of the tools just help people rationalize what is actually happening, mm -hmm. right? You just sit down and we do workbooks and journaling and writing and meditation and thought practices. And then you go, oh, that makes sense. Because mm -hmm. a lot of times a therapist, and, and I love my therapist, so I don't want this to be misconstrued, but a lot of times therapists, they want to talk about the past. I only mm -hmm. want to talk about the future. I don't care what happened to you before. I only care what happens to you next. And having a path for patients um, like us who have been through hell and back to have some guidance in creating that future is just an incredibly valuable um, thing. And I thank you for introducing it. Man, I'm, I don't know how or why, but this is my life's calling and I'm going to run with this until I can anymore because ultimately at the end of the day, I just, I want to make the world a better place. And this is same the only way I know how. Same here. Same here. I look forward to uh, watching it unfold, my friend. Thank you. Thank, thank you, man. Appreciate it so much. Thanks so much for tuning in this week. I'm your host, Jesse Zuckman. If you like what you hear, please consider sharing our work. It really makes a difference. And uh, if you have a couple extra shekels, consider throwing a couple of shekels in the hat over at mentalhealthmedia.org where you can receive a tax deduction because we are a nonprofit project fiscally sponsored by the Northwest Film Forum. And uh, yeah, as always, don't make any changes to your treatment plan. Um, nothing on the show is intended to be medical advice or medical care, and we mean it. If you're going to make any changes, you got to talk to your doctor. I'm not a doctor. Sometimes we have a doctor on the show, but uh, you know what? They're not your doctor. So you have to talk to your doctor before you make any changes whatsoever. Starting, stopping, changes, whatever. Got to talk to your doctor who knows you. We, we don't know you. We wish we knew you, but even if we did know you, I'm not a doctor. So you see how this goes. Um, this episode is brought to you, executive produced by A.V. Flocks, and uh, with a special thanks to Tamara Broadhead, um, Tom Trottier, and Patrick Mohan, and then uh, a shout out to all of our friends on the GoFundMe. If you'd like your name read here, go over to Mental Health Media and make a contribution of, uh, of $50 or more, and you'll get your uh, name read on the list of names. So thank you so much, Ivan Mann, Phil A., Patricia M., Lauren Bachnick, Colin F., Marilyn S., Alex Bachnick, uh, The Smo, Cass G., Jim E., Stu, David L., Tasha J., Judy B., Stephen J, Malik S, Nelson P, Stacy, uh, Patrick L, Stephanie P, Aaron V, Tim W. Thank you so much, Handy H, Gene A, Rose Pyle, um, Irving A, 
uh, Bob S. Thank you, Bob. Jackie Mazer. Thank you, Jackie. Tyler. Sophia M. Thank you. And Chip and Nads. I can't thank you enough for your support and making mental health media possible. Um, just some notes. Um, in order to get the uh, project on its feet, um, we need a little bit more time day to day just getting the infrastructure set up. So you may be hearing a little bit less of mental radio each and every week. It might be more like every other week um, until we get our feet under us financially. If you'd like more mental radio, please help us fundraise. Send me a message if you know somebody with a few shekels. But uh, right now we are on a shoestring budget and uh, looking for money takes time, and producing podcasts takes a bunch of time. Editing podcasts takes a bunch of time. Posting to the social media takes a bunch of time. Um, so it's a lot of work for not a lot of people. And by not a lot of people, I mean me and a cat. So you may be hearing a little bit less of the podcast. Um, if you would like to change that, send me a message. There are some volunteer opportunities that will help change that or just help us fundraise or throw a, a couple of shekels in the hat over at Mental Health Media. But if you hear a little bit less of the show, that doesn't mean that anything is wrong. It just means that we are out hustling, trying to get that support so we can bring you more and more content and we can make Mental Health Media a reality um, that is here to stay. So with that said, I really appreciate everybody tuning in. Um, until next week, you can find me over at Zookman, at Z-O-O-K-M-A-N-N, on the Twitter machine. I am on the same handle on Instagram. Don't really update that a whole bunch. Uh, Mental Health Media is on Instagram as well, um, if you just want to make sure you, you see all the podcasts when they come out. But the best way to get me is on Twitter, where you can talk to me. And uh, yeah, every day I spend at least a half hour, an hour uh, replying to folks. So if uh, if you want to get me and just see what's going on with the project, uh, give me a shout over on Twitter. Just see what's going on over on Twitter. It's, uh, that's where the action is. So yeah, until next week, hang in there. Try to make space for whatever you're feeling. You know, there's no right way to feel on this journey. It's just as long as we're moving forward and we're moving through our feelings, I have found in my own journey, that is just what keeps me moving forward. Not trying to blame myself for, for not moving forward fast enough. You know, not uh, blaming myself for being stuck once in a while. It really helps for me to think of this as a journey going up a mountain and you know some days are easy on the path some days are harder but we just got to make sure we are moving forward so if you're somebody that's moving forward i'm really 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 proud of you even if it looks like you're stuck in a ditch if you're thinking about moving forward and you're just doing one tiny thing to help you get out of that ditch i am so so proud of you for doing that and so is basho basho the cat is proud of you too He's a good cat. Right, bud? See if I can get him to talk. He always wants to talk when uh, when I don't want him to talk. And then when I make a cue to say, hey, bud, you want to say hi? Silence. Silence. He's like, uh, not a good actor. He's a great therapy cat. Terrible actor. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. I really appreciate you. I appreciate your support. I appreciate you being in this little community that we're building. And, uh, yeah, I'll see you. I'll see you in a couple of weeks. I'll hear, or you'll hear from me. 
in a couple of weeks. All right, Zygazan.